Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. I was speaking to a psychologist, an Australian by birth, who has lived and worked both in the United States and in Australia. In an off-the-cuff comment, he said that the mental health issues in Australia are different than what he sees here in the United States. This intrigued me because so many of us consider the Australian culture to be very similar to that of the United States. It's not. Joining us today is Dr. Glenn Caddy from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thank you for for being with us. Certainly, Abby. Thank you for asking me to come. I am always leery of using statistics past the point because they are too often confusing and often biased. But we look for trends. In those trends, we look for inconsistencies because sometimes these differences are very telling. I read from official websites that one in five Australians have a mental illness and one in four Americans have a mental illness. That's a 20% difference. When I look at the details, I see that if we look at affective disorders, which is commonly considered depressions and bipolar disorders, and not anxiety, the Australians clocked in at 6.2% of their population, and in the United States, it was 15.7%, more than double. So, Dr. Caddy, using these numbers as a beginning point, are these differences in the affective disorder rates merely artifacts of statistical instruments or maybe diagnostic definitions, or do they reflect some other differences in the two societies? I'm interested in your observations. Well, I think that inevitably going to be some statistical artifact issues, simply because the sampling can never be absolutely identical across the two systems and precise. But I do think that overall, the the level of distress that you see in the American population is greater than the level of distress in terms of the affective disorders and in fact some other classes as well. And I think that there are a number of reasons that Australia is somewhat spared of the intensity of some of these issues that what we see in, in the United States. What is the attitude towards mental health in Australia? Is it what's the attitude differences? I think that the attitude differences are are not really all that great. I think that though I, I do think that culture, the underlying culture of the two, increases the probability that people in the United States will be more emotionally disconnected, more emotionally traumatized, more likely to suffer mental distress of a whole variety of kinds than is true in Australia. There are multiple forces operating. Australia basically is a more egalitarian society than is true in the United States. In the United States, we tend, although we say that we look after our neighbor and that we try and do the right thing by people, in fact, we do a terrible job of managing the lesser advantaged in our society. America is a society that seems to be focused more on the individual and more on consumption by the individual. Very small number of people in this country hold a tremendously disproportionate amount of the wealth and they continue to get wealthier. And especially as we've seen it in the recent period of deterioration of economic strength in the United States, our our middle class in this country is moving more and more, becoming a, a more expanded class and moving into to the less or the most disadvantaged class. And we do not seem to have meaningful strategies for more equitable treatment, uh, equitable access to medical care, equitable access to mental health care, equitable access to education. We don't seem to be able to manage the problems of unemployment. There are so many elements that are much more problematic in America these days than is true in Australia. 
And it's, you know, it's really quite tragic. Is the family structure in Australia different than the one that we see in this country? And by that, I mean that there is so much fragmentation here. There is so much separation of the parents from the children and the number of hours that kids spend on their video games and computers versus more the traditional family activities. Is that a big issue? Is that a big difference? I think that there is greater fragmentation in the United States. But I think that the real difference is not so much within the general family structure, but within the larger notion of how the community as a whole works better together in Australia as opposed to individual family units working well together in the United States. And some of that is really a product of the entire approach to the delivery of virtually all of the services that individuals have, whether it be police services, whether it be educational services, whether it be medical services, whether it be essentially opportunity based on the ability to achieve and perform. There simply are greater opportunities in Australia these days than is true in America, and there's greater support to help people advance. The educational system is a case in point. When you have local-run, local-funded education and local-controlled education, you have an educational system that advances the relatively rich communities and disadvantages the lesser communities and, in some instances, the lesser states. When you have a centralized educational system where every teacher in the entire country gets paid the same amount of money for the same amount of production, where they exist in a world that not only pays them substantially better, but values their role a substantial profession. There are differences that flow from that. There are also differences in terms of how the educational system treats its individual students. And that process gives students in many respects more alternatives than the presumption of necessarily going to a university, many of which students in Australia do not go to universities but go to technical education simply because they, at the end of the day, they may not have the ability to master the higher intellectual demands that are placed on students going to university. Meanwhile, the educational system at university is substantially of a higher standard than all but the very best of the educational systems, of the university systems in this country. You said at the very beginning that the Australians have less stress, and now this seems to be expanding on why they do have less stress, because their culture, and you know, it's interesting that every time you look at any good study of the basis and and, and extent and prevalence of mental illness, they always talk about the necessity, absolute necessity, of looking at the cultural and sociologic environment in which the person is suffering their mental illness. And you're describing something that's very different. Who provides mental health care in Australia? Is it, again, we're using the word fragmented. Over here, we have so many people providing mental health care, and it varies from neighborhood to neighborhood almost. Do you see that in Australia as well? No, you don't see limitations of access to mental health care imposed as a result of money or as a result of financial disadvantage because in Australia, everybody has access to health care and that health care, as a minimum, there is a government-sponsored health delivery system that everybody can access. There is also additional insurance-based care that people can access if they want certain preferred access. For example, if you go and you want to deliver a baby and you want a private room or a suite, 
you may be able to get that as a result of insurance. You will not get that as a result of the standard government-run health scheme. You will get a room that may be private or may have another person in it. But the quality of care in the delivery process is identical, irrespective of whether it's the government-run health scheme or whether you're using a subsidy over and above that through private insurance. The only real difference is that the government-run health scheme has a co-payment obligation, and by paying the extra money for the insurance override, you can potentially eliminate that co-payment obligation. We hear sometimes that in medical systems outside of the United States that there is a waiting list. Uh, we hear stories all the time about how in Canada or in England, if you need something, you may have to wait two months or three months or four months. I don't know if those statistics are hard and true. I have heard them. Many people have heard them. But is that existing in Australia as well? Are there an adequate number of, well, mental health providers? I don't think that in any of the Western countries we have an adequate number of mental health providers because the extent of the issue, the incidence of mental health is generally greater than the number of providers and unfortunately way too many people go untreated or unidentified. I don't think the issue is one of the number of providers. For example, in Australia, the government sponsors a flat rate for psychologists who render professional services, and the patient pays the difference between that flat rate and whatever the fee of the psychologist happens to be. Likewise, the same thing happens in psychiatry, where there is a sort of a, a government rate, and if the psychiatrist charges more than that, then the government will pay that psychiatrist the government rate for services rendered to a client, and the client will pay the difference if the client wishes to see that particular psychiatrist. And the same applies throughout the entire health scheme. Now, when it comes to issues about quality of care, the quality of care is very similar across the two countries. The access, however, to care is far greater in Australia than it is in the United States. Even with the extra out-of-pocket money that the people have to pay themselves? Yes, because the nature of that extra out-of-pocket money isn't 20 or 30 or 50 or or $100,000. If you have a serious life-threatening illness in this country, you can well go broke trying to manage your illness. Absolutely. You also may not be able to, if you are in a poverty class, you may not even find that you can readily access critical services and and or by the time you end up being appropriately diagnosed, maybe too late because we don't engage in anywhere near enough early intervention and prevention programming as in our overall health systems in the United States. And often that's because of worry about having to spend money to get to a doctor if you are poor. That's not a worry that exists in Australia. And so there, for starter, there's some sense of relief that you can access the care that you need. But the other consideration really is how much is going to be allocated, what the public policy is with respect to various, for example, the issue of delay. If you have an urgent matter that requires immediate assistance in Australia, you will get served. If you have an elective procedure that requires no immediate assistance and you wish to go through the government scheme, you will wait until you essentially get high enough on the list to get that elective procedure. Now, if you wish to have an elective procedure more promptly, then you can get that in the same way as you do here by paying for it. The government will still provide a subsidy for that service, but it will not 
cover the entire cost as it may if you simply are on the list because it will not bump you up the list. You have to do that and that costs you money to accomplish that objective. Does it make for a multi-tiered healthcare system? People will listen to this and say, that's an interesting blend of the American notion of insurance plus some notion of socialized medicine. Not in the sense of quality of care, not at all. You could argue that there's a tier in the sense of how quickly you get it, but not in the quality of care. I will give you an example. Tragically, in in my own family, my father at 90 years of age developed Alzheimer's. I could notice that he was getting a little fuzzy for a year or so before, but at 90 he was diagnosed. Initially, he was provided government support to allow him to continue to stay in his home for a while. My mother was no longer living, so the government provided him with a home care aide who came every day and did everything from a little bit of the cleaning to cooking his meals and making sure that he was doing all right. And she would spend about five hours a day with him. At government expense? At government expense. Okay. But it was cheaper to have her come to the home than to put him into a facility at that point. As he continued to deteriorate, it became critical. He decided that he was going to allow a a pot to burn on a stove once and nearly created a fire in the kitchen. So it became clear that he could no longer stay in his own home. And he was transferred to what would have to be regarded as just an absolutely delightful residential, group residential home, where he spent the next three years of his life until passing. Now, if my mother had have also been sick, she too would have been able to accompany him to that facility. And I recall that for all of the medications that he was given and his daily care and his room and board at that facility, it was costing me out of pocket about $600 a month. And that was an excellent facility. The government was picking up all of the rest. And in fact, if I had not been able to pass a means test, a financial means test, and I was poor myself, he would have received those services without charge. What an interesting difference. You know, one of the things that I noted when I was preparing for today is that a statistic that I found, and again, knowing that statistics can sometimes be difficult to take past the point, is that in Australia, only 25% of the people with mental illnesses were actually taking medications for it. By my rough numbers, that's roughly 4% of the total population. In a USA report about a year or two ago, in USA newspaper, it said that there was an estimated 10% of the entire American population taking antidepressants. So maybe so many people in this country are taking it when they don't need it, or maybe if we had, and this is an interesting thing to think about, if we had a system that gave more security, people wouldn't feel as much anxiety and it wouldn't trigger as many depressions and it would be a cascade. It's something worth thinking about. Australia is different. It is different, and so is New Zealand, and so are many, many countries. I think there are a couple of comments that I'm going to make about that. I find it unconscionable, the number of people in this country who are on psychotropic medication. I think that it is a system that is largely out of control. A lot of those medications are given not by psychiatrists, but by general physicians. Often the patient is not properly monitored. Often the drug is given in a manner that is not really required. It's given as a token to give somebody something rather than to actually initiate a meaningful treatment strategy or referral to a psychiatrist or a psychologist who would provide the sort of professional therapeutic care necessary. Too much of psychiatry has abandoned the delivery of treatment services by way of sitting and talking to a patient to resolve the problems that an individual is is experiencing. 
In Australia, they've done it really quite differently. In order to contemplate a reduction in the cost of psychotropic medication, they've put the family practitioner as the gatekeeper of services in the mental health field. If the family practitioner believes that the person needs to go to a psychologist, then he will refer to a psychologist and in fact he will be paid a fee for referring to a psychologist. If on the other hand he believes that his patient needs to go to a psychiatrist, he will refer to the psychiatrist but the family practitioner will not be paid a fee for a referral to the psychiatrist. The reason being that they are seeking to try and control the management of the cost of psychotropic drugs in the country and they know that if they refer to a psychiatrist they're very likely to get medication whereas if they refer to a psychologist they're very likely to start off not getting medication but then will be referred should the psychologist consider that it is likely that medication is required or perhaps the psychologist will have a further consult with the family practitioner who referred the case and make a determination with him at that point that the referral to a psychiatrist would be appropriate. So one of the ways of regulating uh, or setting about to regulate the distribution of psychotropic meds in Australia is to produce incentives to the family physician to refer first to a psychologist. The other consideration, of course, is that people can self-refer to either psychologist or psychiatrist, but the incentive, the economic incentive of the psychiatrist is not to do simple med checks because they don't make all that much more money from the government health scheme by doing med checks than they would if they sat down with a patient for 50 minutes and did a comprehensive psychotherapeutic consult. So that the incentives around pumping meds out five or six patients an hour that occurs as a result of the economic incentives connected to the insurance industry here are really different from the economic incentives the psychiatrist experiences in the Australian-based government health scheme. The American Psychiatric Society has recently published guidelines for the treatment of major depression and the emphasis on early onset or early interventions with psychotherapy is quite clear. So there seems to be a movement in the same direction. Dr. Glenn Caddy is a psychologist who has lived and worked both in Australia and in the United States. The more we know about other countries, their strong points and their weak points, the better we will be as we design the system for us. Dr. Caddy, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Dr. Strauss. Pleasure.